What's going on, guys? Welcome to the first episode of the relaunch of the Live Your Truth Now podcast. I'm Mike Ligori. I am so grateful and excited that you're here joining me on this new journey about exploring authenticity in our lives and in our successes. This is a journey that I really wanted to talk about for a long time. It's a journey I've wanted to go on, and I'm so grateful that all of you are willing to join me willing to take that step in finding out what it truly means to live your truth now. And today's episode is with my good friend, Dr. Wesley Kress. Now, before I get into a little bit about Dr. Wes, I wanna tell all of you guys that this conversation is one of the most profound, deepest conversations that I've ever had in doing podcasting for the last seven years at Live Your Truth Media. Wes is so genuine, he's incredibly compassionate, and he sees people for who they are and where they're at. And one of the things that I love is is that Wesley so beautifully explains what the ego is and why it is also a deterrent, but it's also necessary for us to live the life that we desire. And you know, there's probably some of you out there right now that are wondering why your ego is so strong or why it's doing more harm than good or you don't really have a good relationship with it. And Dr. West is gonna answer those questions for you today. And so I'm really excited about this conversation. I hope you are too. And just to give you some background on Dr. Wesley Kress, he's a board certified acupuncturist and has a master's of science in oriental medicine from Phoenix Institute of Herbal Medicine in Acupuncture. He specializes in pain, injury rehab, optimizing human performance and chronic disease management, including autoimmune and systemic medical conditions. He's also Arizona's first and most experienced new fit specialist and has over 17 years of experience with the technology. He has worked with everybody from the NBA, NFL, MLB, the NHL, UFC, and even trained the Chicago Cubs and Los Angeles Angels training staff on how to use the new fit technology. So with all that being said, this is a conversation you don't want to miss. And I am really excited today to have you guys dive into my conversation with the one and only Dr. Wesley Kress. Dr. Wesley Kress, welcome to Live Your Truth Now. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I know. It's been about, uh, this is like our fifth time uh, <laughs> trying to record with all the internet problems we've both been having on our end. So I'm really glad we uh, figured it out finally. You know, that's podcasting for you. Yes. You know, it happens. Kind of like our nervous system, right? I think you were mentioning that earlier, how important the operating system or, ner- or operating system, actually, you were mentioning yes. the importance of that. I want to dive into my first question. We were talking earlier before uh, through our multiple kind of like uh, conversations we were having trying to figure out the internet. We were actually talking about um, how to become friends with your ego. And I thought this was such a relevant topic for someone like you who's very well versed in the mind-body connection through your uh, medicine practice, uh, also working with top performers in the world, really understanding the importance and the role of the nervous system. And as I was diving into kind of some of the questions I wanted to get into uh, with you today, my first, the first thing that came to mind was this, you know, uh, process of the discovery of the true nature of who we are. And I know that's like a very uh, complex way to kind of jump into the episode. But I think it's important for context that people hear a little bit about your journey and how you came about 
identifying this relationship between the egoic structure, your very own, and uh, the true nature of who you are. Um, I'd love to have you share a little bit about what led you to that process and how you discovered uh, this relationship between the, the ego and our true selves and how we need to be friends with it. Yes, I think that's a great starting point. It started around age seven for me. The, the reason it started was uh, at seven, I started to experience a lot of uh, somatic symptoms and signs that opened me up to the nature of, of reality, you could say, or my reality at this point, which would be better defined as e- an egoic structure that had emerged from early trauma that I had experienced. So at age four, I had been raped and this had continued on for many, many mm-hmm. years and was sort of the basis of what led me down this path of self-realization, spirituality, healing, and medicine. And this was both the paradox of the most profound journey that one could take, because I would say that this is the most valuable journey that one could embark on, and yet also the most challenging. So from age seven onward, there was sort of a seeker, you could say, within me, a searcher for the truth. And what that truth uh, ended up discovering was that the truth was so close that uh, I sort of miss it. (laughs) And uh, that is Mm -hmm. the nature of the egoic structure is that through trauma and through the construct of the mind is that we essentially don't have a direct connection with truth. Uh, And it's doing the best that it can to actually protect us. So the egoic structure is designed to help us survive. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with the egoic structure. And oftentimes it is discussed from a negative lens or a negative point of view. But the reason it's so helpful to go down this path is that everything within the egoic structure is helpful in contrast to what we are not and so that we can understand what we are. (laughs) And this is a very broad question, as you mentioned, and so we'll sort of uh, go through this process a little bit yeah. with my journey. Yeah. And and one of the things that was interesting that you said about survival and ego and like it's, it's I guess you can say it's foundational function is to make sure that we are alive, that we are okay, that there is some mechanism of protection for us. Um, I've heard from other podcasts and from other guests that basically if we didn't have an ego, we'd all be dead. And, you know, in, in hearing that in the way that you were talking about survival and the ego, um, I also find that on the, on, you know, its utility in terms of what the ego is, there's this notion in, in society, and, and you hear this among personal development gurus and leaders in the space, they talk about the killing of the ego because of its, it's this villain, it's this, it's an enemy and I think you've approached it from such a, a mechanism of like, it has its purpose, it has its place. And what are your thoughts about this whole conversation around killing your ego, the vilif- uh, villainication of it, um, or vilifying it, I should say? Uh, what are your thoughts around that? Yes. Uh, for one, you can't necessarily kill an illusion. So uh, mm. that's... Uh, mm sort of can see past it or through it. It's sort of like a magic trick. You know, if you were trying to like look at the magic trick and somehow like make it different than what it was, the only thing that changes is your perception of it, meaning you recognize it for what it is. And so this idea that you can somehow kill the ego is sort of like a 
it's not the appropriate approach simply because it doesn't exist, you could say. Um, but what does exist is your identification around it. And so in the same way that you can see past an illusion of the magic trick, the magic trick can still be done, but it no longer sort of creates the suffering that it created before because you can see that it's not real, if that makes sense. And so yeah. the idea that people approach is that the ego does create all our suffering, but it doesn't go away at the end. <laughs> it's just seen through. And so that is the differentiation of approach that I would say that I have arrived at and seen is that any sort of killing or idea that you're going to remove it is a form of resistance and all suffering exists in resistance. And so the idea is to see this clarity, not reaction. And that's like a big part of the healing journey is the egoic structure is sort of likened to the evolutionary state of our biology. And in the opposite contrast of this is the spiritual side, which is the ability to accept all things as it is, just the way it is through an experience of love. And the spiritual process is uh, looking back at the evolutionary process, sort of like the yin and yang symbols are sort of one, but they're sort of contrasting the other. And so to know one is to know the other. Right. So you, you don't really have any in duality that exists in separation. So the egoic structure, the way I define it and help people understand it, so you can sort of get an understanding because like animals yeah. don't have an egoic structure, but they do have a set self. And there's a difference here. And essentially we want to arrive back at a sense of self, which is more likened to our natural state but outside of separation from a false self, which is the egoic structure that emerges from essentially trauma and our feeling experience of separation. So the mind I'll define now as sort of the egoic structure is a yeah. likened to a pair of virtual reality goggles that goes over your experience and it has a projection into the past, which has beliefs, conditionings, lenses of perceptions, all from past experiences. And these things are very much felt visceral experiences. So they have somatic nature and emotions that are tied that make them feel very real. And mm -hmm. so each individual has a different set of virtual reality go goggles. And this is why like people often argue that like, oh, it depends on your reality or someone else's reality. And, and they are true, but not true right? Because actually there's only one reality. And this is like the part of self-realization that we get to at the furthest end of the journey is that until we unwind and undo all the conditioning and the lenses, perceptions, and the beliefs and the constructs that we actually don't experience reality as it is. We experience reality through our virtual reality goggles, which is our egoic structure. And this projection into the future, like dreaming of the mind and like hoping for a better future will bring something is actually just a trauma response and everything that could ever be is actually right here right now and if you suffer now you'll suffer into the future the only reason you get some reprieve when you are dreaming about the future is you're actually creating some amount of conditioning that is escaping the pain and the unprocessed material from the past that is part of the egoic structure. 
Yeah, that's so interesting. It's almost like you're creating distance between the present, uh, you know, the present moment where you are into this future ideation that things are going to be better for you in your tomorrow. And I, and I think something that was really interesting was, you know, the role of suffering in shaping and forming who we truly are. You know, it, your, your childhood and your, your journey to where you are today was, you know, full of so much adversity and there was so much trauma in there that the work you've done is just absolutely incredible for someone to take where they've been and how they grew up and to overcome that through, um, you know, multiple different practices and modalities. And I think what I would love to hear from you is more about this role that suffering has played and your own personal suffering has played into helping you find your true identity, the true nature of who you are, and and also the separation of the ego. And we'll get into more of the non-duality aspect later. But I, I think this relationship that you've cultivated through the lens of your own suffering uh, is quite profound. And I'd love for you to just elaborate more on that for us. Yes. So suffering is sort of the compass back home, right? So wherever we suffer mm. is sort of where we have to look in terms of healing, right? So it's it's oftentimes like in current society where someone's like, oh, you triggered me and they see that person as a villain. But along your healing journey, you see that person as a gift because wherever you are triggered is essentially where you need to actually bring healing to. Because uh, at the end, yeah. like uh, suffering again only exists in the nature of the egoic structure. So every person that triggers you is a gift to look at the areas of healing that needs to still take place. And suffering was something I became very intimate with uh, because of the nature of my path. And I should yeah. mention one other thing that probably is important. Obviously, I mentioned uh, the rape, but I also should mention I grew up in a cult religion. So I had the extreme end of the constructs of the mind where essentially our paradigm was that everyone outside of this construct of beliefs was sort of going to a lost eternity. And so it really narrowed me into this like conditioning at a very young age um, of a very strong egoic structure that was split into uh, like thousands of pieces from the opposite actually happening at the somatic visceral level. And it just so happens that like our sexual energy is the most powerful. So that's why like sexual survivors of rape and stuff have such a difficult time healing is because you know, in this moment, I was like pulled on both ends of the extreme of having the construct of the mind and then simultaneously having this somatic experience that was overwhelming to underdeveloped nervous system. And it shattered yeah. in all this way. And so by the time I was 19, uh, there wasn't a single thing that didn't trigger me <laughs> on, on, on all levels. So, mm. and this is like, from the standpoint, I was chemically sensitive, I was food sensitive, I was... Uh, triggered by you know pretty much every interaction of anyone else's nervous system um, and so essentially I had gotten to the furthest end of what we would consider in a broad sense contraction so yeah. and then to contrast to where I'm at today is a you know a, a state of Samadhi so this is like a not having really any triggers to anything. Um, so this has been like walking the whole path from contraction to expansion has been one at which I've been able to drive a, a deep sense of direct experience to a lot of these truths that are actually very real experientially in terms of spiritual truths and 
things around the egoic structure that oftentimes get left to the mind because like none of this is actually in the mind. <laughs> it's actually a direct, felt, mm. true experience. But in order to get to that direct, true experience is sort of we have to let go of the mind. And my first journey was really through the mind because the trauma had pushed me out of my body and into the mind is the first place to escape. And so I had really increased the strength of my mind as my main coping mechanism because I didn't want to, well, it's not that I didn't want to, but my egoic structure had avoided me from being in my body because that's where all the somatic trauma was. And so my mind was strengthened even more significantly over time. And I did have a, a natural inclination towards, uh, you know, hyper intellectualism. And so part of my journey was road mapping all of the spiritual path, uh, and, you know, not actually the embodiment, the embodiment was like the final layers. And so in some ways, like you, when you're born into such chaos and suffering, you know, you, you try to find shallow ground of like some stability. Yeah. And I thought I could find that in the mind. Unfortunately, no amount of safety can ever be experienced in the mind. It's like a, a child who starts asking their mom or dad about death. And then they're like, well, what happens if you both die? And then what happens if my auntie and uncle die? And then it just, it's like, it, it just spirals, right? There's like yeah. no way you can actually find safety in the mind. It only exists in the body. <laughs> and, uh, well, well, and, uh, and, you know, it's something you said, you know, something you said, Wesley, about the contraction expansion aspect. We've had a ton of conversations, I know, offline about the, the, the non-duality to the true self, which is like you, there are times where you're going to be in a contraction state and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, in the navigation of the self, there are the, the contraction states, which are very much like the focus periods that of, uh, you know, uh, I would say when I drink coffee, like I'm very much in a contractionary state. And I know you've, you and I have talked about, um, caffeine, right? <laughs> and, 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 and extensively. And, you know, when I, when I notice I'm on coffee or I drink a lot of coffee, like I am like very focused, I'm very much focused on this very one thing, task getting completed. And then on the expansionary aspect is that through meditation, uh, which I do practice not as much as I'd like to, but I know you're, you know, you're, I know you're quite the, the meditation practitioner. Um, but in the sense of meditation, there's an expansionary where you are connected to all things. I found in the journey of my discovery of my own self, right? And my true authenticity has been in playing in those, uh, arenas, uh, that in those types of, of, of places to where I can be focused, but I am also can be connected to everything and anything all at once. For you with, you know, your personal journey and, and discovering all of this, what have you found is, is the most powerful thing in the contractionary states when you are contractionary and also when you are expansionary in nature? And how does that work for you in kind of solidifying um, you, your authentic self, your, your truth that you're living today? Yes, you did a great job of articulating contraction. All right, there you go. <laughs> I got it. Yeah. yeah, it really is sort of like a, a field of, I guess, attention and awareness. Awareness is like, you know, just like the totality of our experience. And then the attention is like, where within that awareness are we focused? So attention would be like, okay, in a contractionary moment, all I'm focused on is my breath, right? I might be mm -hmm. aware of other things, but like, if you 
if you actually contract deep enough, you can sort of like lose everything um, in relationship to everything else just at the expense of the contraction of focusing on your breath. And we do this uh, very commonly day to day. So if you're at the computer, you're so contracted, your attention so contracted on your work that you, you're not even aware of your body anymore. But your attention is mm. all in your work. So you might have to have used the restroom three hours ago and now you are like, it's becoming so urgent that it's calling your attention to this recognition. It's expanding uh, simply because it's becoming further and further escalation of urgency. Yeah, like when you forget to eat or like you forget to like drink water, or you don't know where the time went. I'm assuming those would be examples of uh, hyper-contractionary states. Yes, and most people live yeah. in these hyper-contractionary states of the mind, hmm. right? So it's kind of like they're lost in thought about the future or the past. And so they're not actually here in the now. <laughs> and so the, the nature of contraction expansion is that they both exist in meditation. Essentially, initially, you have to be able to contract enough, meaning focus enough, in order to get to expansion. Because if you can't hold any degree of attention on any one thing, how do you think you can hold it on all things? So expansion is the yeah. furthest end of the progression of meditation. So meditation becomes uh, progressively expansionary, meaning you're not focused on any one thing. And some people like Sam Harris and so forth have talked about this as do nothing meditation. So you're not actually seeing anything in separation as much as like you're just having an experience. And so that that is uh, expansionary meditation, but you can't get there without contraction, meaning you can't get to that state without having enough ability to focus your attention. And so most people are in contraction, but they're also in deep states of distraction, like distractibility. Because and, and part of that is because there's so much windows of RAM, of past experiences, conditionings, things that are unprocessed in the past. And, and if they're unprocessed, it's as if they're still happening right here, right now. So if you meditate, mm. you go to sit to meditate, you, you will recognize that the things you were feeling were always present, but your attention may have been trying to escape the sensations. So if you have anxiety in your chest or in your lower abdomen, you may have not noticed because you were so contracted in the mind of your work. And so work becomes this coping mechanism. This is why like workaholism exists. And I definitely, that was one of my... <laughs> areas of like, I would say addiction before I was able to heal some layers is that you escape into the work as a sense, loss of sense of self, right? And what I mean by a loss of sense of self is like, if you focus in on something so strong, you sort of have what people would consider as like a state of flow or a state of uh, the zone where like, yeah, uh, essentially like, you're getting a state of the experience of, I, I would say, glimpses of what enlightenment is like, you know, and, and it's because like you, you don't have the experience of all the distractibility of the egoic structure. You're, you're so contracted. The problem is with this is that it, it is not enduring or sustainable. So like essentially it comes at a great cost or an expense and it in itself is like likened to like stepping over a dollar to pick up a penny. And so this is where like the distinction comes into play is that natural healthy processes that are insatiable 
are essentially this process where you step over a dollar to pick up a penny. They never actually satiate you. And these are forms of addiction. And so like you could liken it to exercise. Exercise inherently should be healthy if you do it through the nature of the somatic. Oh, so when when you talk about somatic, uh, the body, like, uh, expand on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me more. Tell me more about the relationship of that, if you don't mind. Yes. Yeah, so exercise, as it relates to uh, addiction, can be understood from the standpoint of the difference between working out through the mind versus actually working out through the body, the somatic nature of things. And mm-hmm. I'll give a little bit of context and relativity because ultimately. Uh, I see this quite commonly in the, you know, fitness enthusiasts, self-help space is that essentially you have individuals with a really weak mind who basically would stop way before the nature of the body would stop. And then you have really people on the extreme end of a very strong mind, like a David Goggins or, or so forth that go way beyond when the body should stop. Yeah, like top performers, like CrossFit athletes. and Yeah, yeah. and I would say, yes. And essentially, they were able to push way beyond the capacity of what the body is from a healthy standpoint. And again, defining healthy is, is essentially relative to the capacity of the nervous system to adapt to some sort of externalized stress or internalized stress on the body, meaning its adaptation capacity. And so this can be quite complex uh, in terms of like discussion, but you can see this when someone is further breaking down than actually being able to adapt. And I w- would go as far as to say that uh, if we wanted to get really nuanced about this, you you could see in the nature of contraction of their nervous system. So the way Goggins comes across is actually quite mm-hmm. He's quite angry. He's quite uh, extreme in all of the ways in which he approaches. And there's nothing inherently wrong with this. Uh, essentially, contraction is what leads us to expansion. Like, if you don't contract enough, you're not going to have the clarity of understanding of what expansion means. So, Goggins, in many ways, is probably closer to like the possibility of going down the path of enlightenment than someone who's sort of in the middle here. He he's actually on the path of self-discovery and self-realization. He might not know it, but everyone is. That's there's, interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, there's not a single person who isn't on the spiritual path. It's just whether you're aware of it or not aware of it is sort of what differentiates people. So I would say uh, all forms of contrast at the extreme are actually the most insightful. So when you go deep into contraction, which I did just based on my life path, and also like Goggins in terms of the nature where he is, is you are able to extract a lot more wisdom of understanding of, of things because, you know, it's like if, if relatively speaking, I gave you an extreme experience of, say, you know, a temperature you would sort of know the other end much more. Yeah, yeah. Right? So all mm. forms of mm. contrast are able to give us an understanding of the whole. So extremes are very powerful in their ability to illuminate um, all parts of the self. That's interesting. Oh, sorry, Wes, Wesley. I, I wanted to, to dive into that, uh, just kind of maybe have you uh, parse this out a little bit more. So if I'm hearing you correctly on this, that basically in these modes of extremism where we're pushing outside of our comfort zone, you know, um, you and I have a friend, uh, Akshay, who's who's going to be on the show at, uh, in the near future where he chases the these levels of extremes 
in in pursuit of himself. And you know, you and I have talked to him extensively. And if I'm hearing you correctly, it's these arenas of extreme where we're pushing our um, our bodies past what we think they're capable of using our minds, or we're you know chasing. We're sitting outside in you know. Uh, can't be, we're going on a polar expedition by ourselves for 30 days alone and isolated in these really um, notorious environments that have known to like really just break the human spirit. Those are the arenas actually where we can truly find who we are and our relationship to the ego. Is that, is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yes. In fact, all Beautiful. of is have a relationship to these things. It won't take mm. you all there, but it's going to illuminate a lot of the truths. Um, so the, the reason that is, is like, you know, essentially there's a certain level of energy that's required to keep up the constructs of the ego, right? And so when you go to these extremes, be it physical, right, eventually you get to a point where there's no more energy left in the system and all the walls of the ego shatter. And, and this is beyond that veil. And a lot of mystics would say, if you could knot yourself for just a moment, all the truth would be holden unto you. And so these practices of like severe fasting or, you know, intense journeys like Akshay takes or so forth, like when he gets to that extreme, anything taken to his extreme flips into its opposite. It's like mm. at the of night, it flips into day, right? Even the extreme of a fever, it doesn't get you hotter. It gives you chills, right? Like the, the nature of extreme is that it flips into its opposite. So the extreme layers of the mind actually give you glimpses into the true self. And that's why all spiritual practices and traditions actually use those practices as forms of self-realization. So the nature of some of the self-realization as it relates to the extremes is that essentially you're able to understand its opposite by going into the furthest extreme of the mind, which is... Mm sort of like uh, outside of the bounds of what the body and energy capacity can handle. And when you get to that extreme, all the walls of the egoic structure don't have enough energy to continue to uh, give you lenses of perceptions, conditionings, and so forth, and they fall away. I mean, this is what's considered as the dark night of the soul in some of the spiritual journey I had at 19. And you know, you have many of them along the path, but people also have consider this like rock bottom. So if you, you take the extreme yeah. drug usage, right? All drug usage is doing is tapping into energy within your own system, but the problem is, is that it's actually opening a gateway of more and more conditioning that is contractionary in nature. It's sort of the, again, the same analogy we talked about earlier, stepping over a dollar to pick up a penny. Yeah. People who end up on the spiritual path have come from those paths. The reason is they've gone so deep into contraction, they recognize there's nothing down there. <laughs> so for the person mm. who hasn't experienced those states, they're still like curious. So maybe, maybe there's something down there. But like the person who's hit rock bottom like a drug addict and clearly gone the other way, they know with all clarity there's nothing down there. So th there, there's a truth realization through you know a rock bottom state that is some of the most powerful clarity of intangibles that lead person all the way through um, to full self-realization. So sometimes, again, all forms of suffering are potentiations for expansion. So again, no time or things are lost, and all forms of wisdom are extracted from contraction. 
And uh, so you know, sometimes have to go down these paths. And that's why like all rivers end up back in the ocean, so to speak. Mm. And yeah, no that's a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah, there are no wrong paths. Um, the only path that would take you further away, I s- would say, is that you are become so asleep um, or unconscious that you know you're you're not actually present with the unfolding of these things and a lot of these behaviors do take us deeper into unconscious behaviors so the you know a lot of times spiritual teachers and so forth would say if you want to really help with an addiction is just just be present with it uh, the presence of it the awareness of it will help it dissolve on its own uh, and it's because the unconscious behavior it's what's driving more of the addictive cycle um, most people are trying, trying to escape some sort of past experience of trauma, and that's why they are using. Um, it's, uh, but you can't sort of see that in the beginning. And so as you bring attention and awareness to those areas, it expands. And by that very nature, as you look at something, it changes. I mean, in this we could get down into physics and, and all sorts yeah. of but But ultimately... That's that's why. And so these extremes of exercise and so forth are what drive, you know, many spiritual practices of like long fasting, long meditations or extreme endeavors like Akshay and things like that to get glimpses into the divine God, the infinite, which is a part of self-realization. And ultimately, I would say that the difference is that at some point you have to walk through the path and let go of a lot of that because like there's actually an enduring sustainable path and not a fleeting one. <laughs> mm. I didn't really realize this uh, for a while. So I-, I thought for some reason I could, uh, you know, take everything to the extreme and I would just like end up there and then it would be this sort of perpetuity, but that, that that's actually not, not accurate. Um, so that's why meditation sort of really like the final destination. Um, is that it's it's an unwinding of everything, and then when you unwind, you just get back to the true self, which is uh, what a childlike yeah. childlike is basically. You know, a child's sort of like born enlightened. It doesn't really have a full construct of sense of self. It's just sort of in the moment. It's experiencing everything through awe and astonishment. It doesn't need to be taught joy. It doesn't need to be taught love. It just is that. And at our truest nature, we are just love. And we are just joy. And and you can see this in childlike spirits before, you know, we are have all these conditionings, traumas, lenses of perception, and constructs of the mind is is that. And that's why most biblical and spiritual traditions like is actually getting to our childlike nature. And the spiritual path is actually to heal the inner child, right? Uh, and so that that's sort of part of the contrast. And you can heal the inner child by having children because your inner child is just, you know sort of the reflected back to you through the children you have. So it's a, you know, there's actually an implicit nature of just evolution or biology that that is already inherently spiritual by nature. I mean, the word spirituality is often compartmentalized so heavily that people think they're not spiritual. It's, 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 uh, Oh, that's interesting. It's like spirituality is the operating, like the base operating system of everything. Yeah, no, that that was, that was really well said. And I think there was, there was so much in there that uh, I found was really, it was really powerful because, you know, really the presence and the awareness of the problem, uh, eventually will help it dissolve on its own. I love that. Um, and I think it's, and I think it's very cool. It's like this, the, this, this circular motion of, 
you know, all rivers going back in the oceans. Like you can do such deep work, you can go to the extremes, but, um, you know, the longer you're on that path, you'll always, you will eventually come back to the self. You will come back home. Um, and I think it's, I think it's just like really beautiful how you, how you ex- explain the intricacy of that. And, you know, the other thing that, that came to mind as you were talking was, you know, there are a lot of people out there who like competing mm-hmm. and there's competition and like, oh, I'm going to become the best version of myself. I'm going to go super hard and I'm going to do all this deep work on myself. And they treat it very much like a race. I have noticed in, in my own journey um, and at times my own competitive streak and also with people that I hang out with in their competitive streak that there can be a higher chance of beating yourself up or, or feeling like you failed in the pursuit of knowing who you are and identifying that truth that you've always wanted to live for yourself. Um, and, and I find that you know, it's kind of counterintuitive. It's like you're working on yourself, but then like you're beating yourself up at the same time. And you're not really extending any sort of love. And I do, I do believe with you, you know, in uh, agreement with you, I should say that, you know, we are all love at the, at the base layer. That's, that's what we are. Um, this idea of compassion though, you are, you are to me in, in one of the most compassionate individuals I've ever met. I see it with your patients. I see it with your friends and, and people very close to you. I even see it with you and strangers, uh, the extension of that compassion that you've cultivated through um, many hours and, and time spent on on undoing all of the hardships and the travesties that have happened to you to really be an extension of love and compassion. When, in your own personal experience, when you were going through your own journey of healing to get to the core nature of your true self, how did you navigate? failure because you're a pretty you're a high performing guy you're you're competitive in nature you know how do you navigate your relationship with competition and how does compassion play an important role in that or does it play a role in that yeah no i think these are all great um points and i thank you for that kindness and reflection and i think going back to some of your points about like people who are competitive with themselves uh, and, and speaking to this point is that when you take a self that you are right now, which is a construct in the mind, and then say, okay, I need to create a, a new self, you're actually creating a new conditioned self on top of that, right? It's not actually an unwinding, it's a winding process. And so like to, to take one self and relative to another part of yourself is actually to sort of mm. miss the boat here. <laughs> um we, we oftentimes do this and it's coming from a place of competitiveness, meaning that somehow you have to beat the other side, but by beating the other side is that for one, you're validating that the other side is real and true and exist, right? That like this other self that you've learned to practice and behave and have all these conditionings is, is real because like every, in contrast to that, it, it's like, you feel like I'm, for instance, to give like a really good analogy is like, again, I go back to David Goggins because he's a really good extreme side of this, but like he's still running from the, the individual mm. that's overweight, right? He, he's, that construct is still deeply embedded in the nature of the self he's created, right? Which is like every part of his motivation is about destroying that old self. But by doing so, he can't actually let it go. Because like every part of the conditioning of the new self is in relationship to the old self that wasn't really real, 
Meaning that like, yes, the experiences he had around it were real. He was overweight. He had a lot of trauma from his father, but like ultimately they weren't Mm. him. And so most self-help and and so forth is like around this idea that I need to create a new self, which is layering new conditioning in response or reactivity to an old self that I feel is inferior. And, and, And so by doing that, you're creating a dichotomy of resistance right? Like two sides pulling. And not only are you validating that the old self was you, but you're creating all this energy in the new self, right? And and this is where it's like, you know, I, I see like this idea of imposter yeah. syndrome and all this thing, which is again, just another construct of the mind, right? That, that creates a lot of suffering because like it, it, it doesn't exist outside of the mind, right? It, it, you're creating a construct of relativity. And so to speak to the point of compassion, because I think this all fits in, is like at the nature of contraction that I was at is that I met myself mm. wherever I was and I didn't be anything different than I was. And so like a lot of people like understand about the ideas of compassion and kindness and they start performing these things. And I call it performative compassion or performative kindness. And there's nothing inherently wrong with it, right? In fact, like, I would consider like a lot of my path had some of those components along the way, because when you study spirituality, you start performing these things, but like to get to the point where you're not performing is actually to unwind everything because at the core base layer of all these things is that's actually our inherent Hmm. nature, like is to passionate because when you go through the transformative process of unwinding these things and actually feeling all the pain from the accumulated traumas, conditioning, lens of perception, you don't have to try to be compassionate. (laughs) You know because you've experienced all of this pain directly, right? It's like the the person who's, you know, has actually experienced what it's like to not have a meal and to be on the streets of a homeless. If they were to go to the other end of that spectrum, you don't have to tell them to be compassionate. Yeah, They have been through the formative process right? And so the nature of what I would consider, like when you speak to like Gandhi or Jesus or all the things, they went through the whole process of transformation, which was self-realization. And so they ended up at who they actually were because all of this is within us, you know, like the idea, like Carl Jung spoke to quite a bit of this, of like, you know, a lot of people on the spiritual path actually seek the light. And the idea isn't to seek the light. The idea is to take the light you have and shine it in the areas of darkness within yourself that you don't want to face so that you bring the shadow Mm -hmm. into the light. And so all the areas of unconscious behaviors and pain and sort of evil doings that people discuss in the world are actually just areas that haven't been brought to the light. And so the light again, can be seen as like this attention and awareness and presence that we were referring to earlier in the conversation is as you bring that to yourself, the things naturally transcend, they naturally tra- naturally transform. And so I think there was a uh, discussion about when Jesus was on the cross and he was getting nailed to the cross, there was an individual nailing him to the cross and he was looking upon him with eyes of compassion. This was a, a, a visceral experience that he had within himself, uh, that he had practiced uh, through all of his transformative practices. 
And the reason that was, was because you recognize that anything outside of this is actually a further acceleration for suffering and pain of yourself and others. So when when Jesus said, forgive them for they know not what they do, he was referring to the fact that if he were to resist what was happening in the moment, which would be to, you know, have taken the pain he was enduring and spew it back out externally through the projection that this person is evil or bad, not from the compassion that this person is deeply wounded and doing unconscious behaviors because he understood that having gone through the whole self-realization that ultimately he would be creating a projection of his mind into reality that was actually affecting his entire nervous system and also leading him away That's from God. Interesting. Wow. Huh. And so that that was that was uh and these truths are very accurate in terms of, you know, direct experience. Sure. And so that's why like ultimately to to judge someone else is to judge yourself. Yeah. Right because and they said that is because it's a projection of your own mind. And so you're creating conditionings um that are actually also happening to you. Like you, you can't separate these things. And so like if someone's very angry or upset and they're actually going to hurt someone else, they're hurting themselves simultaneously because it, it, it's coming from a place of pain already within us. And again, that's why like triggers are an opportunity for us to heal. You know, when someone gets triggered, then they like lash out with pain. Right, because it's an exposure. Yeah, it's an exposure of of something within yourself that you haven't healed yet. And it's interesting you were talking about compassion. It's, you know, I, I have found that cultivating compassion is actually for me. It has been a very long journey to do that. I've had moments of it, um, times where I felt like I, I did a good enough job of compassion. But then again, that like almost like defeats the purpose because I'm like using it as like a quantifiable metric. Like, did I give enough compassion today to X individual during their time of adversity, right? Which is like very counterintuitive to just being compassionate from the lens of who I am. Uh, you said something yes. that I, I wanted to, we're not I wanted to kind of dive into this and then I want to segue into something else that I know you've you've talked a lot about and um you know this idea of compassion and anger also being this like non-dualistic uh relationship with each other it's like if you're very angry through self-realization if you're angry if you've been poor if you've been overweight if you've been anything that you feel as though has been really taxing on you when you go to the other side of you know being incredibly in shape, wealthy, um, going from not angry to that just full of love, compassion is a complete mainstay in that because you already know what it's like to be in those darker moments. And I think it's really interesting that you know this relationship of compassion and anger. But I almost feel like in order, and again, this is just my perspective based on what you said in this conversation that in order for you to truly have compassion, you must know what anger is. Yes. Yeah. And it's and it, and yeah. is anger okay for us to have if we want to achieve compassion, especially for ourselves? If we're mad at ourselves that we don't like the way we look, or we don't like the state of our finances, we don't like the state of our business, is it okay for us to be angry? Is it okay for us to be mad at that? Yes. And in fact, the answer is a resounding yes. You can only, and this is where like, you can't actually walk the spiritual path through the mind. The mind is this idea that you need to be somewhere 
other than where you are or experience something other than what you're experiencing. Mm. And this is where like religion falls short or like some of these things is like you're trying to actually be something you're not. Meaning, okay, you have this anger and you're experiencing the anger. Um, and ultimately you're like, oh, I shouldn't feel this way. But, but by doing so, you're denying the nature of what you're experiencing. And if I were to like lay out the entire spiritual path in just a succinct little way, that's very short, yeah. is that you, you don't engage, you don't resist, and you feel fully. And then when I say engage, you don't engage at the level of the mind, but you feel fully. And, um, so, and don't react. So don't react, don't resist, don't engage and feel fully. Right. And so the, the, the very nature is when you're feeling something inside, let's say you're feeling the anger, right? The idea that that anger is still inside of you is because it hasn't been felt, heard, or seen. And anger is a response to boundaries not being upheld hmm. with self or other. Right. So, so anger is a, actually a natural physiological, biological response that is healthy. Hmm. So again, and that's why the whole path of self-realization has to go through the shadow. Because if you, you, you don't actually go through and process all these shadow emotions, you're actually just identifying around the end point of spirituality. Which is like, oh, yeah, I want to be Jesus, I want to be Gandhi, I want to be all these people. Like, It's just a new egoic structure you now identify. Yeah, by. you can't be Jesus right. by saying you want to be Jesus. Like, <laughs> it's a projection yeah, of Yeah, right, bond. right. Like, and it's just a furthering of a misunderstanding of the very nature of spiritual processing. So the idea of what you're speaking to is that when you're feeling that anger, you don't necessarily have to engage with the anger in terms of like explicitly, like let's say you're feeling really anger. The key is to be present where that anger is and to feel it fully. If you are in a deep state of awareness, you can actually take enough space and time to feel it fully and then respond rather than react. Mm. And that is this, don't react, don't resist, don't engage, feel fully. So I would go as far as to say that whatever you're feeling is exactly the area that needs healing. And to, to, to go anywhere other than where that is, is to not be on the spiritual path, but be on the path of the egoic structure in the mind and to go deeper into illusion and deception of self. And so it's like, that's where like, there's not a lot of discussion around this, but I would say it, it's actually very common that people get more lost in avoidance of the shadow, um, which is like kind of the emotions that people, oh, you, these are all the emotions that are make people bad. Yeah. But like that, that's not necessarily true. Like they all come from a place of hurt and pain, right? Like there isn't any person that's doing these things that people would coin as like evil behavior unless it's coming from a place of pain or hurt and 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 also unconsciousness right or and i say one unconscious like someone might know that they're doing it but they do not understand they truly do not understand the implications of what that means right so like the person who's nailing the nails into the cross uh, of jesus christ like he might have been knowing that what he was doing is inherently wrong, but he did not know the implications. Like, and this is where you awaken to these things. And Jesus had already awakened to this. That's why he he, he wasn't resisting that. And by not resisting it, he was basically able to stay in the divine center. That's interesting. Right? Love, passion, 
through that yeah. because he knew any level of resistance would have taken him down the path of the shadow emotions. Hmm. And so, so, so he was feeling everything at a deep visceral level uh, of experience, but he wasn't resisting it. And all suffering happens in resistance. And so yeah. there was no need to like jump into the mind and say, oh, this is a horrible person. You know, like he could see his own pain. Because when you realize self, you realize all of others. Like you're a microcosm of the macrocosm. You're not only the, a drop in the universe, but you're the universe in a drop. I like that. That's actually, that's a I should put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> you know. Yes. Yeah. I, I want to first of all thank you for this amazing conversation and um I want to f- finish off you know with two two more segments and this last segment and then um you know wrap it up with a kind of some some closing thoughts from you. You're a big proponent of psychedelics and we have talked extensively about psychedelics and I know psychedelics is trendy and everybody's like, you know, thinks it's cool and awesome to just do mushrooms and microdosing has been great. And, you know, there's also this other aspect of like ayahuasca journeys are like having their day in the sun, so to speak, where people are going to do plant medicine just across the board. And I know there's a lot of scientific research that, you know, has shown that depression, anger, um, you know, anxiety all have reduced under the, uh, under the guise of using psychedelics extensively. When it comes to the role of self-discovery and, and you know, in the theme of this show and, and authenticity and, and living your truth now and discovering who you really are and creating a life outside of that, you have told me how powerful psychedelics are and how they're used as a tool and I'd love for you to just shine some light specifically on the role psychedelics has played um, in in your life and what your thoughts about using it as a tool in, in terms of um, expanding upon one's journey to discovering who they are and undoing these layers that we get from conditioning and forming over experiences of our lives. Uh, I'd love for you to just share a little bit with that and have a conversation with me as uh, we approach the end of the show. Yes, I think that's a, a great point of conversation. I know it's very relevant. Mm. I mean, I was aware of psychedelics pretty much my entire life. I was very anti-drugs of any kind because of prior conditionings and, you know, uh, growing up in a cold and just ultimately all the health issues that ensued because of that. So um, yeah, I was always aware of them. I was not aware to the degree of like safety. And so I credit a lot of, you know, Roland Griffith's work at John Hopkins at really opening my my own mind, uh, I was always, you know, it's the nature of how spiritual progression happens is you have to have first be open <laughs> and then you have to go beyond what you don't know you don't know, right? That, that's actually the only way growth happens. And so there's an implicit humility with the spiritual path. And I would say that the nature of psychedelics are somewhat of a tool and they can they can catch people along the way in terms of taking them down paths that would like make things longer than they should be. Um, and that yeah. that reason is because they don't really understand the process. And so from 16 to about age 33, I focus under a mentor named Gary Van Warmadam. He runs a website called pathwaytohappiness.com. And he was a mentee under the, his mentor, Don Miguel Ruiz, who wrote The Four Agreements, The Fifth Agreement, and obviously Mastery of Love and many other uh, deep wisdom around the egoic structure, dissolving it. And he was very 
intricate in my ability to understand the process of these things. Uh, so he on his website, he has two self-mastery courses where he breaks down uh, the nature of the process of how you go about doing this. Because you read the four agreements, you're like, wow, that would be great. <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. But, you know, ultimately it, it ends up just becoming this like fleeting uh, experience that you read through the chapters. But, you know, a lot of people don't get to the embodiment because embodiment, mm. the information doesn't equal transformation. It's the integration of that information that becomes transformative. And so this speaks a little bit to psychedelics is that let's say, you know, for instance, someone didn't really understand the roadmap of the egoic structure and all of these things like you can't you can't get to enlightenment through psychedelics right you can't you can't actually get to a lot of areas of the self just through psychedelics uh, for one psychedelics are actually allowing you to let go of the mind and to experience all forms of of, of the self um, outside of the mind and that's why it's such a powerful tool is like even this conversation that people are listening to, like there's a limitation as to what they will be able to receive through their own lenses of perception of their own mind. And so there's still like natural resistances that we all have up until we like go beyond those, meaning open up beyond those. And psychedelics gives you ability to open up beyond anything you've experienced in the past and that you define as self, meaning conditionings, lenses of perceptions, um, and beliefs and so forth. And then you were like, wow, what's all of this? And a lot of that is really, you know, a, a direct connection to the infinite, which is essentially who we, we, we are and we come from. And so mm. psychedelics give the opportunity to experience this in a way that's outside of the level of the mind. And that's why they're so transformative is this Michael Pollan in his uh, book, you know, How to Change Your Mind, and then also on the Netflix series, sort of discusses a good analogy uh, in reference to this. He says that psychedelics sort of, if, if you had a snow globe and that snow globe had a lot of paths of neurological patterning of what you thought to be your you right? Like from past behaviors, from mm. just over coping mechanisms, so forth. What it does is it shakes that snow globe. And it creates this like critical period of opening to actually acquire new ways of experiencing yourself and others. And so when you shake that snow globe, you have fresh powder that goes all over these sort of like continual pathways that you've you know, driven down. And in this opportunity, one might call that neuroplasticity, is that you have an opportunity to engage with new behaviors um, so meditation or things that you're trying to change. And that's why the critical period mm. of psychedelics is actually something that, you know, again, people aren't really maximizing. So when I got done with a lot of my psychedelics, like I really had a container of having studied Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, and all sort of the natural processes uh, of, uh, of life. And I added something in every time I did psychedelics and really sort of like ingrained that into my processes um, so that it became an extension of sort of what one would say as like the Tao, which is just alignment with natural processes and natural rhythms of life. And so psychedelics, you know, there's so many different ones. And, you know, I would say that some are, you know, more studied than others and some are safer than others. And you know, you can go down the list. A lot of the differentiation, though, with psychedelics and traditional drugs is that psychedelics actually take you closer to you. 
Whereas other drugs take you further away from you. They take you into the mind and they give you an opportunity for conditioning. So for instance, like... But yeah, can you give me an example of, of what types of drugs um, pull you away? Yeah, so most most other drugs are really heavily dopaminergic mediated um, mm. and actually create a lot of... Uh, you know, ability of conditioning. So for instance, like, um, that's why they're so addictive, you know, like they take an amphetamine, um, it's like a thousand percent of your normal baseline dopamine levels. And so it like expels all this energy for you and you get this euphoria and stuff like that. But then as you come down into contraction, you, you go back cause it's actually designed like dopamine is like the currency of life. And so you like, you end up like trying to go back to that same high and the behavior is tied to the conditioning um, and as well as the experience of that drug. So for instance, like, you know, absolutely like within relativity, like when you take an amphetamine or alcohol or any of these drugs that like how you're going to feel and the egoic structure is all about control yeah. and certainty. So those drugs are all like feeding the, the the mind and the egoic structure because it knows exactly what it's going to feel. And um, it doesn't have any sort of like unpredictability, right? And it doesn't necessarily, it can bring up emotions from the subconscious because alcohol, for instance, like it'll pull some of the subconscious forward, but it actually tends to take people deeper into their delusions and the, their illusions. Um, and so... For instance, uh, psychedelics, they work on a 5H2A pathway of the serotonergic network. And what they're doing is they're actually going to the areas of somatic conditioning that you've had in the past that are unprocessed emotions. And that's why, you know, some people say, oh, I had a bad trip or a good trip. They're really just, uh, the, the, you know, the bad trips are really the ones that are shining light on the shadow and areas right. of unprocessed emotions that you didn't want to feel. That's why you coin it as a bad trip is because it's giving you an experience you don't want to feel. But those tend to be the most healing because those are the areas that you actually have to bring the light to in order to integrate into the whole, right? And so the nature of psychedelics is to get closer to the areas that you're disconnected from and all forms of like alcohol, amphetamines, heroin, uh, cocaine, opioids, they actually numb some part of you. Um, and they give you an opportunity to feel that euphoric nature in a very specific way that uh, is insatiable. Like there's not a complete cycle to it at all. Um, so the cycle of completion of a drug is actually representative of whether it's healthy or unhealthy. So mm -hmm. in the same way that like junk food is insatiable, you take some junk food and you just, you, you never satisfy right yeah um or if if you go and uh consume some unhealthy behavior like pornography or something like that it's 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 never healthy because essentially like you can never get enough of it like it's not satiating there's not a complete cycle loop to it right it's actually hijacking a specific process in the body that's natural but it's giving you something but never anything you know again it's go back mm. to this or picking up a penny um yeah. so it, it's ultimately contractionary in its nature, right? It's sort of taking more from you than it's giving back, but it gives you it in the control of the mind. <laughs> Meaning you get it here and now, like, oh, I want to have this experience. I'm going to you know, participate in this drug, but it's insatiable, right? But with psychedelics, mm -hmm. like, there's a reason why they're non-addictive, right? Like, uh, if you go through uh, a psilocybin journey, you're like, whoa, like, you know, I just had to process all these emotions that I didn't want yeah. to go. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, 
Uh, I don't know if I'll be touching that for a little while or maybe a few weeks until like I fully integrate all of that. And it's mm. because it's making it closer into yourself and uh, actually making you feel, right? The other drugs aren't making you feel, they're giving you what you want, right? And that's why like psychedelics give you what you need, not what you want. Um, and so there, there's just distinct processes and one is satiating. I mean, there's a complete cycle loop that happens with psychedelics. I mean, of course, there's some people who like, do them more, right? Um, and are more willing to do that work. And of course, it's not the only piece of the process, but ultimately, I think it, it is contingent on the nature of that individual and how much work they're re- willing to dive into, and also how much energy and the nature of health of the nervous system can integrate. Yeah. And, you know, we can have a long discussion on on that component itself, but ultimately, the unhealthy nature of insatiable path of the drugs that most people use. And if you want to know what those drugs are, just look at the black market, right? The black market will tell you whether something that has a huge demand is probably because most people are caught in the egoic structure um, as to whether those are unhealthy or not. I mean, there's a really small market for psychedelics because like very few people want to go down there. And if they do on the other side, they always mix it with the other drugs, right? Like they don't ever <laughs> take psychedelics yeah. Higher dosing because they're trying to avoid feeling something which is like traumatic in nature. Yeah, I was going to say that it was like a, it's like a fear of uh, discovering what they would find, like in within themselves. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, uh, first of all, Doctor Wesley, uh, this is great, man, and thank you so much for all your time today. And you know, I this psychedelic section we'll probably have to have for like a whole other separate episode for because I feel like we could go down the rabbit hole with this. And, you know, especially now with more of the mainstream attention that's catching, I don't know if it's like fully mainstream, but, you know, there are, there is progress being made in the utility of that through, you know, really helping people break free of their own constraints. And so uh, I think it's really interesting about, you know, bringing you closer to the true nature of yourself. And that it, this is one of many tools that can do that. Meditation was another one. Um, and understanding the the process of extremes and how important they are uh, into that. So uh, thank you so much for your time and just your your knowledge and your wisdom and just also sharing your your personal story. Um, for this show, we'd like to end every episode with a, a piece of advice or a lesson that you could share with our audience in helping them discover the their true nature of who they want to be, what their truth is. What's that piece of advice that you would like to share with people who are looking to really find their authentic self or be more of their authentic self? Yes. Uh, if there's one piece of advice that I would recommend that people practice is bringing presence uh, to Mm. the present moment. And the reason that is, is that there is no truth that can be found in the mind. It can only actually be discovered in right here, right now. And that ultimately, wherever you are in your journey is exactly where you need to be. And the differentiating factor between you progressing along the healing path is your ability to be present. And so uh, this would be added by one other piece of advice that would uh, come along with this uh, is that to create more space in your life. So most of us fill every amount of time that we have with more busyness and more things to do. 
And that takes us further away from presence. The greatest music has uh, space between the notes, right? Like if you were to try to, you know, create music and there was no space between the notes, essentially it would, it would sound, yeah. you know, horrible. And so most people are trying to create um, sort of a song of their life or a symphony by ringing together so much noise and so much distraction. And then they wonder why they aren't progressing along the path of healing or growth. And it's that you actually need to do yeah. less to, mm. to, to do more. And so essentially, again, if there's a piece of advice is to bring presence to the current moment and to create more space. And when you create more space, I would say the practice of doing this and actually creating transformation transformation is to do meditation. And if you feel that you are quite contracted in the mind, is to do a form of meditation called Vipassana, which is somatic meditation, which is body scanning. Um, and not to do sort of traditional meditation where you're just focusing on, you know, a single yeah. thing or the mantra or something like that. Because the, the nature of the somatic is where all the magic lies, right? Like to be in your body like a child is to experience the totality of the universe and self um, because that is where heart-centered is. It's not in the mind. And so um, most people have a lot of issues at the level of the somatic trauma, meaning the body trauma. And so that would be a better start to a contractionary meditation of focus by incrementally scanning the body and that would uh, allow for presence and for space to become a regular practice mm. in your life architecture that would lead you to self-realization mm. beautifully said and a great way to end the episode dr wesley kress my dear friend thank you so much for your time as always and your knowledge uh, it's been great having you on and sharing your wisdom with us. So thank you again. I appreciate you greatly. And uh, I will see you soon, my friend. Well, thank you, Mike. Thank you for creating this podcast and this platform of living your truth. And uh, you are the embodiment of being directly on the path and being in the perfect area of helping myself and so many others continue to grow along their path. Because at the end, mm. we're all just mirrors to each other on this path. And it's a beautiful uh, testimony for me to see your growth um, and to be a participant thank you. as well. And so thank you for all that you do. Yeah, thank you, man. I really appreciate it. And I'll see you at dinner soon. And thanks to all of you for listening and watching this episode of Live Your Truth Now. If you like what you heard, you like what you watched, Go ahead and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can also subscribe to Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to check out the full version of this episode. You can also follow me at Mike.Ligori on Instagram. And Dr. Wesley, before you go, uh, where can people connect with you and find more about your work? Uh, yes, they can connect with me through Instagram. Uh, I have a profile at Breakthrough Performance hyphen Rehab. And also... They can connect through my website at breakthroughperformance-rehab.com. And those are the areas that they can find me and uh, reach out. I also do 
uh, consults, virtual and so forth. If people are interested in doing uh, appointments like that. Uh, and then most of my sessions are in, in clinic. But uh, yeah, those are the areas they can connect with me. Amazing. And we'll put those links in the show notes for you guys to check out. Um, I have seen, uh, personally, I've seen a, a Dr. Wesley multiple times over the, the course of my uh, residency here in, in the Phoenix area. And I know my fiance has, continues to see you as well. And you've done so much for us on the health front. So go check out Dr. Wesley. Thank you guys again for tuning in. We will see you next time. Peace out.